everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. In this episode, we have another Q&A panel that we're bringing to you from our event in L.A. We had a great time out there. It was wonderful to see Tom Campbell and Marla Fries got to meet Marla finally in person. She is a, a wonderful human being and really added a lot to the Q&A, although usually when we do these Q&As with Tom, people tend to ask him the majority of the questions, but Marla uh, did get her two cents in there, and we had some questions that were answered by her as well, which was nice to hear. She's been a longtime follower of Tom's work and has kind of integrated that into her psychic mediumship practice as well. And she touches upon that. And some of the questions that were asked for this Q&A panel have to do with Tom describing a little bit more about the binaural beats and hemisync music, also how the Explorer files worked. Uh, some people asked some questions about our spirit guides and how do we tune into them and actually hear them or work with them. A uh, person in the audience also asked Tom about his aha moment, like how did he really know that this stuff was real and kind of what made him, I guess you could say, believe um, that there was such thing as this larger consciousness system. And then we also had some people asking about psychic readings and really how accurate are those readings and this one person in the audience kept going to a bunch of different psychics and some of the information would be point on and then other times he would be told other stuff so that was kind of an interesting exchange that he and Tom and Marla had on the Q&A panel and then another question came up about ego and fear about knowing that when we're kind of in our bad moods and we're experiencing life and it's not feeling good that we may be more in the fear state but then sometimes what is this ego thing if maybe we are feeling really happy. Is that ego or are we just in the flow of this reality system and doing the right thing? So I think that you'll find this Q&A interesting. There are different questions that have been ha that have been asked from our other Q&A questions. So we hope you enjoy listening to this Q&A panel from Redondo Beach at the Hilton Garden Inn. Marla, would you like to just introduce yourself too? Because I don't know where Dagda is, but I didn't get a chance to really do, you know, bios and things like that. Some people might already be familiar with your work, but if you can just introduce yourself. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for this wonderful presentation of this work. Um, I, I come to Tom's work after, well, growing up. I'd like to think that I'm a poster child. <laughs> for uh, growing up and lowering my entropy. Um, my background is coming from an abused childhood, and I think that that really heightened my sensitivities. And whether I chose that, um, to come back into a similar family, but there is something in my soul that I knew I needed to deal with. And of course, at this age, I've had a lot of processing um, through lots of therapy and lots of life coaching and also the consciousness, the larger consciousness system working with me on a constant basis. Growing up through belief systems, merging into more consciousness and having a life of pretending to, to help me survive. I was an actress for 25 years. And it was in an awakening, basically um, a, a fear-based awakening, that I sought the help of, well, the remote viewers. And they led me to working with law enforcement, and then I found Tom's work, which has been incredibly helpful. So what I do with Tom's work is I'm 
I'm finding the data streams. I'm finding the information coming in. And um, April and I were talking about this earlier at, at lunch today. You know, on your Mac, on the bottom of your, your Mac, on the right-hand side, there is um, the trash, and then there's a documents thing. When you press documents, it flares up with, you know, that kind of thing. That's how I'm accessing the, the data. It comes up in flares like this, and it can be a whole stream of deceased loved ones or information about things, but it has emotion. It has sight. It has hearing. It has all of that. So I'm, I'm on a constant um, process to understand how I'm accessing that and what to do with it for the greater good. So thank you, and I'm so happy to be here. So we would, uh, yes. <laughs> oh, bravo, Marla. <laughs> So um, we would like anybody that has a question to please come up and uh, take the mic and ask away. I was just going to say the film I felt was very thorough. And you, I, so I, I have no questions myself right now. Hello, Tom. Uh, how do we get in touch with our spirit guides? Is there any trick to it? Or do, are we supposed to get in touch with them? And, and do you have any suggestion? Yeah, I guess there's I guess there's a trick to it. Um, the trick is that you just have to ask. But I guess the larger trick is that you have to be ready to make good use of it. In general, the guides, that's just another part of the larger conscious system, just as we are, but the guides can't really guide you if you only interact with them with your intellect. So if you want an intellectual conversation, if you want to talk to them and have them tell you things, they're probably not going to do that because it's not very productive. That's not where the learning has to be. The learning has to be down at the being level, you see. And they can talk to you better at the being level through your intuition, through giving you nudges and ideas and uh, encouraging you to come to events like this and that sort of thing is more effective than a conversation because a conversation pretty much by definition for most people is an intellectual exercise so that's one thing you have to be ready to have that connection at the being level not just operate on with at the intellectual level so that means you have to be open to it you have to be non-judgmental you have to be able to um, accept it as it comes. For instance, uh, a mistake that most people make is they want to have contact with something in the larger conscious system. So they put that idea out there and they hear something. They hear, hello, what would you like to talk about? And the first thing they think is, what was that? Did I just make that up? Did I really hear that? Is that a real thing or is that my imagination? You see, instead of listening and being open, the first thing that most people do is jump to judgment, jump to conclusions. They want to know. They want it, that voice to be vetted first. You know, is this somebody that I should talk to? Is it me? If it's not me, how do I know this person isn't a scallywag or, you know, a scoundrel of some sort to tell me wrong things? And then you know, we have fear. 
who is that person? What's their motivation? You see, so we bring all this stuff to it. Our intellect, our judging, our analysis, our fear, and that's why it's really not too useful for guides to come in and say, hello, I'm your guide. What would you like to talk about today? Because most people would blow that off immediately and ask the question, am I making that up? You see, so that's, that's why. So the problem isn't that entities out there aren't interested in talking to you. It's mostly with people, it's that you're not quite ready for that conversation yet until you grow up enough to where you can process it without judging it. Now, you may end up talking to yourself. That's not impossible. The voice you hear may be something you make up. But the point is, you can't tell that right away. Data's data. It doesn't come with a flag on it that vets the source. You just have to be open. You have to accept it. And if after the 10th or 20th time you've made that connection, it turns out to not be anything valuable, and you let it go, and you move on. You see, that's the process, rather than wanting to judge it right away, is this real? Work with it for a while. Because the question that's important isn't, is this real? It's, is this useful? If it's useful, it doesn't matter where it comes from. If you're getting it out of your own mind and it's useful, that's great. If you're getting it from some entity out in the great beyond and it isn't good, that isn't good. So it really doesn't matter where it comes from. Just operate on it. See where it takes you. Dig deeper into it. And again, you won't know until it's the tenth time you've had that conversation. So you'll have a conversation and then you'll say, well, let's, let's connect again. And that's easy. You just think of the last conversation and it'll connect very quickly. It's all intent-based. So you know, that's, that's the main thing that's hard about it. Other than that, you just put the intent out there that you think you're ready and that a conversation would be something that would help you learn. And if you're even a little bit ready, you'll probably start with that conversation. But just be open. Can they talk to you through signs and symbols? Because I, I've been yes. doing a lot of that. I Absolutely. I've like been communication with them or her and through signs and symbols constantly throughout the day, especially in the last several months. Yes. That's one of their favorite modes of communication. Yeah. Things that, um, and they'll even plant the idea in your mind that that sign or symbol, symbol means something. Yeah. You know, so that when you see it, it makes a connection. So yes, that's a, that's a typical way. But if you'd like to turn that into conversation, just ask. And if they feel that'll work, there's any value in it, then you'll probably get it. So it's, you know, the trick of it is really to be ready. And then just to have that intent and be open and connect with whatever happens. Judge it on its merit, not on how real you think it is or how real you can prove it to be. Great to meet you, Tom. Uh, my question is, can you uh, talk about uh, what kind of uh, physical process uh, does a person go through um, at you know, the sessions at the uh, Monroe Institute, like when they hear the, the frequencies and how does that process enables you as a, as a person or in your mind to get connected 
to other or parallel realities or well there's a couple of things that that are of value to it and one is maybe not as obvious but it's it's part of the equation and that is you are you are led to feel that this is going to work for you you're in with a whole lot of other people who are doing the same thing so there's a certain amount of placebo effect in it which means you approach it with a positive attitude now you can approach it with too positive an attitude that's when you're too excited about the possibilities and then that chases everything away of course too because now your intellect and your emotions are getting in the way uh, so that's one part of it is the is the positive attitude with which you approach it and you don't need binaural beats to give you a positive attitude you can get that all by yourself but those two will go together particularly in a setting like the Monroe Institute you see and the experiences of the other people around you who are tuning in and, and getting things okay that's one thing secondly what it does physiologically is that it drives your your brain waves electromagnetic waves pick up with a EEG it drives those more dominantly into a theta state so normally now we're talking we're in if we're real relaxed we're in an alpha state if we're on the edge of our chair paying attention you know we're in a beta state on some frequencies are higher now the brain waves really have all mix of frequencies you'll have some theta and some alpha and some beta and all is going on all the time but it's dominant in one frequency or other depending on what you're doing well that theta is the state you get in just before you reach delta which is unconscious so it's that twilight state it's that state where alpha you're just really chilled out theta you've gone beyond chilled out okay you're beginning to let go of your physical senses so it puts you in that theta state and holds you there Normally, you'd be in the theta state for three and a half seconds, and then you'd be, you know, it skips around. So to get there and stay there, if you don't have the binaural beats, that may take, you know, five, six, ten years of meditation before you can keep that state steady and calm without interruption for an hour or two, however long you want, that you can just go there and stay there. That's difficult for a lot of people without a lot of training and meditation. What the binaural beat does is puts you in that state without all those years of practice and holds you there. Now, that's both the good news and the bad news. The good news is it puts you in that state and holds you there, and the bad news is that it puts you in that state and holds you there. <laughs> the reason for the bad news, well, let's start with the good news. The reason for the good news is is you may not be able to do that on your own. Now, it doesn't mean it forces you to have an experience or an out-of-body or whatever. It just puts you in that state where those things are most likely to happen, where you're letting go of your sense data anyway. Okay? The reason that it also is bad news is that you can get dependent on that so that you can't do it any other way, and you can only do it with the binaural beat lying in a bed in the dark, you know, without much noise and, you know, earplugs and, or, you know, your incense burning and et cetera, et cetera. We can come up with rituals and the binaural beat can become a ritual. 
And the worst thing about it is, is it holds you there. Once you get more proficient, you really don't want to be held there. Because that's like the doorway. That's the introduction. That gets you to that state where you can let go. Well, after you get to where you can master the state of letting go, then you want to go do something. You want to go have an experience. You want a remote view. You know, you can hear. You can do all kinds of other things. Intent will be the driver. And it's much easier to do that if you're not being held right at that doorway state of going from the awake to the not awake but still conscious, which is what the out-of-body state is. So it's, it's a very good benefit for people who haven't spent the years at meditation and can't do it without them, but it'll only take you so far and you won't get much further. Now for many people, that's, it's a good trade particularly in the beginning. It's a really good trade. You get a lot out of it. But I would say that every, if you've been using the binaural beats for two or three years or four years, I'd say it's time to take the headphones off and try without it. And that doesn't mean try it once because the first time you try it without it, it'll probably be a disaster because you're not used to it. You've got, you, you've been, you know, gotten used to the, to the ritual. But try it for a month or so and it'll get better and better and see how much you can get out of a get out of your experience to at least make it as good as it was with the binaural beat without the binaural beat. And if that doesn't work out for you, go back to the binaural beat. A couple of years later, just try to let it go again. You see, that's the thing. So you want to wean yourself off of it eventually. My metaphor is it's like the little training wheels on a bicycle. Little training wheels you put on a bicycle so the five-year-olds and six-year-olds can't fall over. It keeps the bike upright. And that's a good way to learn to ride a bike because it gets rid of the fear issue. They're not going to fall off the bike. So they can practice their balance. And you can balance right between either wheel hitting the ground. And you can drive it that way. But you'll never be a really good cyclist with those little wheels hanging on the back of your bike. You see, they inhibit you. They keep you from cornering. Everything is kind of straight and level and slow and so on, which is good for a beginner. So these work kind of like that, too. Great to learn with. but limiting in the long run. Uh, can you also give uh, a couple of examples of how to incorporate uh, the learnings from binaural beats in like, life situations? Well, if you, like what's the connection between meditation, binaural beats, and, and the rest of your life? Um, yeah, if you meditate and you use the binaural beat, and you are successful at remaining conscious but letting go of this physical reality. And by letting go, I don't mean you disappear entirely from here. If, if somebody drives outside your house and honks the horn, you'll hear it. I just mean you're not attached to that sound. You don't automatically say, who's that? Why are they doing that? Or get angry because you know, they're disturbing you or anything. You just, it's there, but you're not attached to it in any way. So you can still be semi-aware of what's going on if it's loud or intrusive, but you're not attached to any of it. If you can get in that state, you will begin to evolve the quality of your consciousness. You don't have to do anything. Just hang out there and eventually things will begin to happen. And the reason for that is that when you're in that state, you're like a, a, an open mic. You're available. The system would like to help you grow up, and now you're paying attention. You're listening. 
Okay, the noise has been reduced. So you will start to get things that help you see bigger pictures without really having to do anything about it. It's just you've put yourself, it's like you're a, you know, you're a, what, a seven or eight year old and you're going to school. You know, you get up, you get dressed, you go, you sit down in the classroom. Well, now you're ready. So that's sort of like that. You get into those altered states to where you're aware, but you're not functioning here. You're aware just with your consciousness. So it's like you're in the classroom saying, okay, teacher, you know, what's up? And things will begin to happen. You'll start getting bigger pictures. The things that typically happen for people right off is they start to deal with their fears. They start to get information that's personal, it's about them, it's about their life, it's about their constraints, really. It's the stuff that holds you back. And you start getting that. And often, people, when they get that, that's it, they're done with meditation. They're done with the binaural beats because that's unpleasant. If they deal with it, then that's the first big step on a process of growing up. And until you deal with some of that fear, it's really hard to grow up. So that's, the, that's kind of what it has to do with the rest of your life. So just by doing these things, you'll tend to grow up, even if you don't try. It just happens. Because you start seeing bigger pictures. You start giving a, getting a bigger sense of things. And as you do that, you know, it's like travel. You know, if you talk to people who've never been more than 25 miles from where they were born, real tiny viewpoint. You talk to people who've been all over this world, spent time, you know, living in other cultures, really expanded viewpoint. They just see the world differently. That's sort of the same thing. It just opens your mind, it broadens your perspective, and you begin to see everything differently, and then that feeds the process. So it's nothing really special you have to do. You just have to be, and you have to be patient, and you have to be open, not judge, you know, get your intellect to sit down and be quiet. That's the hard part for most people. Tom, I was hoping that um, maybe you could speak to the Explorer file, since we're talking about the binaural beats in the labs, um, that we had about four ex excerpts of people that were in the labs at the Monroe Institute, and some people may not understand what was happening there if you're not familiar with that work. Um, but could you speak to sure. that just to let people yeah, know? That was a program that I believe started with Dennis Menerick and myself. And uh, that was Bob's term, term at the Explorer program. And we would meet with Bob. Well, Dennis and I would see him probably three times a week and sometimes on weekends. So it was three or four days a week, and we'd spend four or five hours with him every time. And we would go to the lab, and he would uh, run us through the, his Focus 10 tapes, if you've all been there, you know, that's that's all it was. You know, it took a while, it took a few years before we got to 12 and then 15, <laughs> and all those were inventions of Bob's as we went along, because you start losing the placebo effect if it's always just the same thing. You need something new and different that's going to be better, right? So that always helps, you know, make things new and better. So the focus levels went up with time, and uh, so we, he would often have of missions for us to do go see what you can find out about such and such for about six months we were going into the future reading newspaper headlines and coming back 
and trying to see the date on the newspaper or whatever so that then he could check to see, you know, we were trying to do evidential things. We did a lot of the remote viewing sorts of things. And sometimes we were just out to see what happened. And the way it worked is we had this microphone about three inches from our mouth hanging down from the ceiling. We were in a waterbed in an isolation booth and we just learned to do this. You can learn to do almost anything if you work at it for a while. We learned to do this and be in this out-of-body state and still talk with our physical body. And uh, we would report to him. So every, you know, 10, 15 minutes, if we didn't say anything, he'd ask us, you know, what we were doing, what was going on. But otherwise, we just put, you know, you ran into somebody and you're having a conversation. And what are you talking about? And he may say, well, ask what this person knows about such and such. So we would, and he'd say, well, here's something I'd like to know, you know, and he'd ask us questions to ask them to get back. So he was kind of in the control room running what we did, and occasionally, uh, as the program grew and other people came into it, they'd have their sources, if you will, that they talked to, guides or whatever, people that they knew on, in the non-physical, and some of those sources were more knowledgeable and, and more understandable than others, and he'd, he'd work a vein and try to get as much out of it as possible, and then he'd have us do other things. We would do remote viewing things, and he would give us uh, targets to see what was there. He went one time he got into writing numbers on a blackboard in another room and see if we could read the numbers. And these were all just tests, evidential things. And it wasn't that Bob needed any evidence, but he knew that we needed evidence. Because unless you have evidence, it's not your truth. If it's not your experience that these things are real, then it's not going to be your truth these things are real. I mean, we trusted Bob and knew he wasn't trying to, you know, put one over on us. But until it, it was our experience, it's his experience, you see. So he wanted us to have these evidential experiences, so he'd lead us through that. But it was, it was pretty good. He had a plan, and he had lots of questions and things he wanted to know. He'd ask a lot of times, particularly toward the end of a session, ask, what can we do better here? How can we better learn how to explore these states and how can we learn you know what is the most important things for us to learn here so he's always asking to get advice about what he was doing and what we were doing and how we could make it better and we did get a fair amount of advice about that and we tried to implement as much of it as we could so that was it we were just explorers we were kind of taught how to go out there and and then we'd go look around and see interesting things, talk to interesting beings, and report back, and Bob would lead the conver conversation. And he'd always be checking in with you. So he was doing this with Dennis and I, it was the two of us together would do that. With others, I think mostly it was just them individually, one at a time. So that went over, I don't know, five, six, seven years, something like that. It was a fairly long time, and I think in the whole Explore program there were probably I don't know, maybe four or five regulars that were there week after week after week, and then probably a half dozen or more that came and went as opportunity, you know, uh, as they came available sort of thing. Is that, is that enough? Yeah, Marla wants to say something. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, how many have been to Monroe? 
Okay, so you know that in the programs that you do, you can, and with technology in the iPhone, you can just click on your iPhone and put it in a place in your check booth, and you can learn to report on what you're actually experiencing. So we're continuing the Explorer process at Monroe by doing it ourselves in every program. And I've come home with iPhones filled with information, very much like the, the conversations that we're having. So come to Monroe and have some more experiences. Is there a way to make our um, belief or fears explicit to work on them? Because by their very nature, I, I think we are not really aware of them. That's true. And one of the ways you can do that is get into this theta state, into this meditation state, and ask about them. Ask to, you know, have them brought right up, you know, up close and personal, as they say, you know, in the sportscasting world. And uh, so that you can recognize them and see them and understand them and that you would like help with dealing with them. But don't say that if you don't really mean it, because once that ball starts rolling, sometimes it's hard to shut it down. So this, but you can ask for that and you will probably get it. Well, it just depends on what you need exactly. The system will give you something that will challenge you to understand without running you over. Okay, so it could be anything. It's hard to say. You could start to relive some past moments that created a lot of that fear. You could, you know, um, see the times that that fear created very poor outcomes for you. You could have to, uh, again, if you relive it, you might go back and experience some of the things that, that created it. Maybe very unpleasant. Or you may be challenged to do something about it. And if you say you want help, then that help may be to make it very hard for you to avoid it. In other words, you say, I want help dealing with this fear. Well, that system may just put you between a rock and a hard place with you, you deal with it or there's trouble. And if you choose the trouble, you know, then that's the wrong answer. But it might do that. That would also be uncomfortable. So, because you, you're talking really about change, you know, to get to see those things that you've already stuffed away because you don't want to see them. That's why they're stuffed away because you don't. That keeps you from having to deal with them. So you're going to bring that stuff up and bring it out. And it probably isn't a fast process. If you get it started, it'll probably go on for a couple of years, or depending on how quick you are at getting it and dealing with it. So that's why I say, don't ask if you're not really ready to, you know, to do that because it may be more than you want to do. I've run into any number of people who, oh yeah, I got this under control. You know, I don't have any fear, and they go out and they ask, okay, you know, I want to learn. You know, show me. You know, help me do this stuff. And you know, within a couple of weeks, I'm getting emails from them saying, can you make it stop? Can you make it stop? How do I turn it off? And I said, no, you turn it on. You you know, you'll live with it. You asked the question. You needed to be serious that you really wanted to know. So it, it will help you grow up. It will the yes, things will happen here in the physical that will challenge you to just the things you need to learn. Absolutely. 
suddenly there be maybe parts of your life that get more difficult or harder or more challenging. And that's a reply to your request for, I need help learning these things. People learn better with pain than they do with pleasure. Imagine that. When you're feeling really good, you don't really care about learning anything. You know, let, let the good times roll. I'm happy as the way it is. Uh, don't bother me. But when you're in pain, you say, oh, something's got to change, you see. So pain is a teacher where pleasure gets you kicked back and not want to change. So if you're asking for change, you may be asking for pain. Maybe. Depend, again, depends on how quick learner you are. Now, if you don't have so far to go, then the lessons are probably easy and you can pick them right off and there isn't a lot of issues. If you got a long way to go, it's going to be a tougher road. But don't ask for things that you don't really want. <laughs> I got a question over here in the back. Hi, Tom. Hello. <coughs> um, I, I, I guess I'm like everybody else, and I, you know, I, I think I, I don't have a lot of fear. At least I used to think that, and then I realized that. I can, I can recognize my fear uh, by my feelings, and so, and when I feel, f when I when I have these uncomfortable feelings, at first I just thought well, I'm uncomfortable, but then I realized that the reason I'm uncomfortable is that I'm afraid, and so I'm starting to categorize my emotions. I guess they're emotions, just feelings of um, there's a certain kind of discomfort that I recognize as pain, and then I then I can deal with it. But the sort of odd thing is that I also have um, really pleasant feelings, and at first I thought, well, when I'm having these pleasant feelings, it means that uh, I'm doing something right, but then I realize that when I have these really pleasant feelings often, I'm now learning to distinguish them, that, the, that often the really pleasant feelings are ego. Mm -hmm. And so, is, why, why does pain make you feel miserable and, and ego make you feel happy? Well, because the, the job, <laughs> The job of ego is to disguise the fear. That's what ego is all about. Ego is to make you not notice the fear. You take the fear and you generally keep it under the rug where you can't see it and don't have to deal with it. And ego is the strategy by which you do that. It's the way that you push that fear away. So you just have to be doing just exactly what you're doing is right. You just need to look at things and be real honest about it and if that's feeling good has to do with ego, well, then you can find the fear that actually is responsible for that. You see, there's some, there's some fear and you've just, you've just done something that pushes that fear a little deeper down, a little further away, something that you don't have to deal with that, something that tells you you're really a good person, you're smart or you're clever or you did this or you did that, and that's gonna be your ego. But it's likely there is a fear in there someplace 
that's the result of that, you know, that's a creator of that, of that ego. It's more subtle. That's a harder one to find. When you feel negative, it's obvious. You feel hurt. You feel upset. You know, you feel angry. You feel any of those things. Even stress, there's usually some more obvious fear at the root of it. Feeling good could be a good thing. It could be really good. doesn't have to be your ego. It may just be that you're doing it all right and life is great and you're learning and you're growing and it just feels good. That, that could be. Or it could be that you've just snookered somebody that you really wanted to snooker and it just feels good because you <laughs> got away with it, you know. And that's then that's the ego. So it's just a case by case. You just have to look at it. But it's a, it's a long trip in uncovering these fears because we're very, very good at hiding them and skewing them and, and uh, making them disappear. And that's the ego's job. So if the ego's really doing its job well, you'll say, what fear? I don't have any fear. That's an ego that's really in control. Uh, during your uh, sessions at Monroe Institute, you said that you went to future and collected data or, um, you know, basically um, tried to see future. And could you um, talk about that and um, if you were successfully able to bring back data or information from future? Yes, occasionally, probably less than half the time, we were successful. More than half the time, we were not. Um, why would that be? One reason is that the future is not a done deal. It's just the probable future. Well, to get around that we tried not to go too far out because it's more probable the closer it gets to now so we had only go a week or two ahead you know in a headline well the problem with that is if it's a week or two ahead you know enough about what's going on that your intellect starts to get in and try to try to guess the answers right and it's really hard to make that intellect sit down and be quiet because you'll get something and right away you'll judge it as to whether or not that makes sense based on what you know about current events and what's likely to happen in the next couple of weeks. So let's say it's an election year right now. Well, you might see things that have something to do with that. Well, that's normal enough because there are going to be things in the headlines that have to do with that. But now your own prejudices and your own attitudes and so on then are hard to get rid of them. It's much easier to do something that you don't know anything about. You see, so there was some problems with that. Another problem, well, that, to go back to that, that's why remote viewers have no idea about what their target is. And the people that give them their target has no idea what their target is. So you have 100 targets. You pick one at random, put an envelope, seal it, and you hand it to this guy. And that's the trainer. He walks in and says, I got a, I've got a, uh, a location. Seal up in this envelope. Go to it and tell me what you see. Neither one of them have any idea what's in that envelope. The envelope never gets opened because if they open it and if they would speak the coordinates, now people are saying, well, let's see, you know, so many degrees of latitude, and that's about so-and-so, you know, what's there? What's in that, you know, what, what's kind of remarkable in there that I would notice? And you start guessing. So the people actually get worse at remote viewing the more information they have about what the target is. 
when they know absolutely nothing other than there's a target in an envelope. And that's what any, nobody knows anything more than that because those envelopes were mixed up and pulled out a week ago. And the person that did that had no idea who it would be given to. So it's, it's just really double and triple blind. Then the remote viewer has an easier time of getting it right because you've taken his intellect out of the equation because he's totally ignorant of it. You see, so that's part of it. So you can go further out, but if you go further out, you're going to get caught by the probability because that stuff can change. You get too close in, you got problems with your intellect getting in the way. Now, the other problem that we had, I think, is that the larger consciousness system is real picky about who gets future information and why they're asking and about their motivations. It's not something that is available just for the asking most of the time, depending on your motivations, what you're doing it for. And I think with us in particular, it didn't want us. We were both, Dennis and I, we were both kids, old kids, but kids. You know, we were in our 20s. And um, probably, uh, yeah, late 20s. You know, I was probably 27, 28, something like that. Dennis was maybe a year or two older. And I don't think it wanted us to, to tread too much in that territory because it may have been something that would be a little too attractive to leave alone. So in that case, for our own good, I think it was a little bit uh, of a damper on our ability. But just to let us know that it was possible, we'd have some startling successes where something would just get nailed down to the last word that would show us that it's there. It's possible. And see, that's the whole point. Once you know it's possible, whether you do it or not, well, that's you or the system or something else. But once you know it's possible, that's really all you need to know. But none of us really got good at it. So that's the, that's kind of how that, that worked. Hi, I have a, hi Tom. I have a question about um, the uh, knowing moment, the aha moment when you really, it sinks in that this is real. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak to that experience as far as is that experience itself shifting from you know your whole mindset? Because again, we're in a whole culture and world where we're told you know this is not possible, and I mean it's not just kind of told to us; it's hammered into us our entire life. Mm -hmm. So, could you speak to that experience itself as as like how that changes you, or even at the being level, is that sort of part of you know part of a growing? Uh, part that grows you grow yes. from and yeah and, and I think most people do get to this aha moment where suddenly things click and it all makes sense and for me and uh, for Dennis too you know Dennis was an electrical engineer I'm a physicist we're both very left brain science types that you know uh, are hard to convince of anything without the without the data you know if we don't have an experiment if we don't have the data then it either doesn't exist or we just can't say anything about it that's kind of the way we're made in that profession and both of us going into it had made a, a, a major effort to we're not going to be 
tricked. We're not going to be led into believing something. You know, we're not. We're going to make sure that this is facts before we bite. Okay, not taking the bait. So that's before we really knew Bob or anything else. That's kind of our attitude, right? We already had a chip on our shoulder, you know, going in. And uh, after probably year two or so, where we'd been going out reporting on things, seeing things, checking whether what we saw was what was there, success, a lot of successes. The, the statistics, if you'd kept statistics on it, it would have been, you know, 100,000 to one that we could have been doing the things that we were doing and get so much of it right if we were just guessing or lucky. So intellectually, we both knew this had to be real because you don't get statistics like that just by being lucky because it was consistent. We worked at healing. We worked at all kinds of things. And we're doing this over years, you see. So it's not just we tried it once or twice, but this is hundreds and hundreds of times doing this. So we knew it in our little left brain that it definitely was something real. But that's not the same as getting it at the being level. You can go on a long time knowing it intellectually and never get it at the being level. Dennis and I both got it at the being level a different experience. Mine was when Dennis and I went out of body together had experiences together. Each one of us is talking into a mic to Bob who is recording it on tape. Old days, tape, can you imagine that? And cassette tapes. And then after, oh, an hour and a half or so, pretty long thing, and it was very evidential. It was lots of things that were very unique. It had to be unique things or it wasn't evidential. And we came back and Bob played both of the tapes at the same time. And you could hear Dennis and I talking to each other, answering each other's questions, seeing the same things, commenting on the same kind of things. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. Because for some reason, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And for the next two or three weeks, I was kind of in a semi-stupor <laughs> with this idea of, my god, it's real. You know, well, I knew it was real intellectually, but this is when I finally got it at that aha moment because I couldn't come up with any other kind of explanation that it was real. The next closest thing that one of us had the event and the other one was just getting it out of their mind. Well, that's almost as, you know, out there as what happened. And then myself and Nancy Lee did a, a venture like that where we went out together and it was the same sort of thing, you see. So that was it for me. Dennis, that was just another day at the lab. That didn't just, you know, that didn't do it for him. That was mine, but he had some other experience um, not that long after. That was his aha moment where he got it. Because we had so many weird things happening to us every, I mean, we're going out there three, you know, three or four, sometimes five days a week. And every day you're doing things that are totally impossible every day and we've been doing this for years you know so we've done thousands of impossible things and just a day okay we went out and we saw things together and it came back and there it was on the tape eh, another day at the lab you see and Dennis kind of had that attitude toward it just another set of wild and crazy things that happened but that was for some reason that 
gotten me. So I think it's very personal. I think you just have to be at the right time. I think all of it was building and building and building, and I just needed something to kick it over the top, and that was it. But it took a long time. I was a pretty hard case, I assume, because anybody else who had done as much, you know, unusual things, you know, as Dennis and I did nightly, probably would have gotten it a lot earlier than I did. But it's because I was a physicist and I was not going to be led into believing something that I didn't have the evidence for. So I held out a long time. I'm a slow learner, <laughs> but steady. <laughs> Hey. Well, it has to do a little bit with Marla, because I have <clears throat> become, I'm becoming like a connoisseur of readings. I've had like five or six readings, like Akashic readings, um, uh, uh, live readings with people on the phone. And it turns out that um, some, in some cases they're very similar, in other cases eh, they're a little bit different. But I'm wondering, Tom, can the larger consciousness system affect her readings if my if my read if my intent is ego driven like uh, like in a way i'm trying to trick mm -hmm. the the system mm -hmm. like saying like this guy has told me this this woman told me this mm -hmm. this other thing this so i'm trying like to pick and and get information from different sources at different times so so to have like a proof Maybe it's not uh, my own experience, but um, because I mean, I, I had two readings that were like very similar. My past lifetime was uh, like a terrible war and dying and this miserable thing, and then the last one I had was also about war and about being killed, but it, it, in a different part of the world, like well, like just across the English Channel, no. Mm -hmm. But uh, to me, it was like almost like the larger consciousness system didn't, didn't want me to get like uh, like the proof that 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 my previous life was pretty much like the two previous readings. So I don't know can the larger the LCS affect her readings so I cannot get my information because of it's my ego-driven information. Can it do that? Yes, <laughs> of course you can do that. Um, the larger consciousness system doesn't necessarily tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. <laughs> it tells you what it thinks is going to have the highest probability of you learning something valuable. So it depends on your motivation, your intent, a lot of other things like that. Yes, it can, it can do that. Um, how many cases have we had where we had uh, stellar remote viewers but very high accuracy, and toward the ends of their careers, as they're very well known and and uh, you know books written about them and so on, they start seeing little green men with pointy ears setting up base on the dark side of the moon, you know things like that. Well, the astronauts fly around the moon, and you know, they don't see any of that sort of thing going on over there. So why did they get that information? And in their mind, it was just as accurate. It was given to them just in the same way. It felt just as right when they got that as it did when they got all the stuff that really was right. Well, that was the larger consciousness system taking their ego down a peg or two because they had been very successful. And because if you get too much in the spotlight, you start to push the sign uncertainty buttons and things like that happen. So the lesson in it is 
always be skeptical. No matter what you get, no matter what the source is, always be skeptical. Another place where the, where the conscious system will uh, kind of do some dirty tricks by telling you things that maybe aren't true is that if you depend too much on it, there's some people who can't, you know, go to the bathroom unless they consult, you know, a seer first, right? They need to know the right time, you know, the right place. Should I get married? Should I do this? What college should I go to? You know, is this boyfriend right for me? And et cetera, et cetera, everything. They can't make a decision until they have somebody else tell them something about it. Well, those people are very ripe for being told to take just one more step, you know, off a cliff. <laughs> and if they do it, then they learn that don't really believe everything you hear. In other words, you're giving up your free will. You're not making your own choices. You're not finding out for yourself. You're getting other people to do the work for you, you see. And if that's the case, then sometimes you'll get misinformation. On the other hand, another source of misinformation is that people who get data out of the database, looking at past lives and things like that, they have to interpret that data in terms of their own understanding, their own history, their own fears, their own sense of things. And as Marla will tell you, it's a very subtle thing. You have to learn to pay attention to the feeling. And these feelings are in very subtle shades. And you learn with experience how to interpret those subtle shades of feeling. And that interpretation can change from one day to the next a little bit. You can get the core of it right. You may get part of it right and somebody may have said oh you were in a war and you were in South America and somebody else may have had you in Europe and they both may have been right as far as what they were getting but one of them just translated it one way and one just translated a different way for whatever reason maybe they saw a little piece of a map or something and they said oh that looks like the English Channel or that looks like you know the, the Arabian Gulf or and they they missed it that's not what it was at all the thing in my case is that um, the, the last reading read like a dream I had a long time ago. Mm -hmm. It read perfectly mm -hmm. the dream that I had about being in my bunker and being bombarded. Yeah. You know, and like that. But it was a dream, so he, so this yeah. guy, he, he, he gave the information of my dream, not of my past life. That's what I thought. Could be. Or the dream may have been a visit to your past life. It could have been either. Skepticism. See, it could have been either one. It may have been that you dreamed that because it was a part of your past life, or it could have been that you got your dream. I find this really interesting because you're like a junkie, like a psychic junkie, right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking at this from the perspective of, like, I might feel something around that, but I just trust the larger consciousness system to give me whatever. I might say something to you like, there's been a lot of war in your life. Let's get over that. Because that's what I would hear. I mean, the larger consciousness system is working through me, working with me, working with you to give you what is best for you. And they keep telling me, you need to be more compassionate to people. You need to be more compassionate to yourself. And it's really hard. Well, I guess you're just going to keep hearing that over and over and over again. 
<laughs> and some, and you're going to just keep giving money and money and money away. Okay, but people question my what I do, and I say, yeah, you're right. I spend a little bit. Well, it's my money, so so I don't have too many vices. <laughs> well, let me ask you this: Do you want to be right, or do you want to be happy? I don't. No, I want to be happy. <laughs> oh, be very careful what you say. Be very careful what you say. I just want to be less uncertain. Oh. Less uncertain. That if you have a little bit more certainty, that that um, that makes everything. This is what I suggest to you. You start reading other people. You start listening to the larger consciousness system and you start giving information that you hear and you feel. That's really good. Thanks. Mm -hmm. That's what the larger consciousness system just told me to tell you. Yeah, well that will open open up your own channel and as you get experience doing that, the uncertainty will disappear much more quickly than it will be if you ever ask other people. See, it's your own experience. It's important. So yeah, work on your own. Work on your own experience if you want to get rid of uncertainty. On the other hand, the, I, the other thing that I say almost as often as I say, "Be skeptical," is learn to live gracefully with uncertainty. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Do it rather than have other people do it and watch them and, and kind of take notes on how well they're doing, see how well you're doing. Practice the remote viewing. Practice the getting information out of the system. Practice healing. Mm-hmm. And in six months, you will probably be a lot less uncertain. It's not that hard. It's cheaper, too. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Tom. Um, I discovered your work early this year, and I'm very excited by it. But my question to you is, uh, do you think that human beings will ever reach the point where they can tap into all of the information in the larger consciousness? Or do you think that just simply will not happen? I think it's possible. I think eventually it's even likely. And if you wait long enough, I think it's unavoidable. So we will, we will get there. That's part of our growing up. As you grow up, what it feels like growing up is that you live in a bigger and bigger reality. It takes in more and more things. And eventually you'll live not only in this physical reality, but you'll live in a bigger mental space as well. Your decision space grows. Your reality grows. And that process is an evolutionary process. So it's not going to get to this point and quit. It's going to keep evolving and evolving. So eventually, yes, humanity will get to that point. But we've got a long way to go. We've got a lot of fear to get over first before we, we get there. And some of the things I'm going to talk about tomorrow will be uh, some, some uh, ways that I see that may help us get there quicker. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, thank you all very much for your wonderful questions. If anyone is interested in the workshop this weekend, please see Tom if you're not registered. And uh, 
Also, we would recommend that you visit the path11podcast.com if you would like to hear more interviews that we've done with other people who are studying consciousness. We have uh, Marla on there and Tom on there, so it's another good source of information. So we thank you all very much for coming out, and we're glad that you enjoyed the film. Thank you. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at vimeo.com, guyamtv.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at thepastseries.com or send us a tweet at thepastseries. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.